Good morning. Thank you for being here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew 3. As Dave just read, we will be in verses 13 through 17. And uh, as you turn there to kind of get the participatory juices flowing, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I want you to raise your hand if that question applies to you. All right? So, first question. Raise your hand if you've ever been in an argument. Okay? Hands down. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever argued with your parents. If your hand is not up, you are a liar. Okay? Uh, How about, raise your hand if you've ever been in an argument with God. You've ever argued with God. Okay, again, if your hand's not up, you're a liar. All right, what about uh, sports? Anyone ever argued with a coach, a referee, a, an umpire, or other sports official? It can even be over the television, right? Okay, uh, what about workplace? Anyone ever argued with their boss? What about a doctor? Anyone ever argued with a doctor? Okay, last one. Anyone ever argued with a police officer? Right. We have a couple of off-duty police officers in here. Take down their names. <laughs> Years ago, I had the opportunity to do a ride-along uh, with a, a buddy of mine who's a police officer in a sleepy little town in the Metroplex, and it was the furthest thing in the world from exciting. So if you watch uh, you know, cop shows, uh, this was not that. All right? uh, there were no gunshots the entire night. We didn't have to call for backup. There was no wild foot chase. That's what I was really hoping for. I think I'm fast. Uh, literally the most action that we saw all night was there was an alarm that went off in a building. It was a false alarm. So we didn't even get to do that. So we ended up just sitting there, mostly just running radar uh, all night long. And my buddy, he's a nice guy. He's pretty laid back. And so he didn't really want to write tickets. All right. In fact, he would walk up to the car, and if you do a ride-along, at least, I don't know if it's like this in, in all areas, but at least in this area, he could turn on his mic in such a way that I could hear it in the car. And so he'd walk up to the car, and the first thing he would say was, I'm officer so-and-so. Uh, and he would say, I'm not going to give you a ticket, but I am going to give you a warning. All right? And, uh, and so that would be kind of his uh, immediate uh, response to them. Uh, upon approaching the car. And you'd think that everyone would respond, yes, sir, thank you. And they would go about their day, but they did not. I was shocked by the number of people who would protest and who would argue with him. It was crazy. They've already won. He literally started the conversation by saying, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm just going to give you a a warning. But they would still protest. And what was interesting was even when my buddy would then say, hey, if you keep arguing with me, I'm going to write the ticket after all. You would be shocked at the number of people who would just double down and keep going. He ended up writing a whole lot of tickets that night simply because people are morons. <laughs> and I mention all of that today and this idea of arguing with someone in authority because that's what we're going to see in our text today. We're going to see this argument between a man and someone that's in authority over him, namely between John the Baptist and Jesus. Thankfully, John the Baptist is not like the morons that we stopped in the police car, but rather he quickly consents, he relents to Christ, he sees his authority, and so he quickly uh, agrees to lose the argument. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. First, I ask you to pray for yourself whether you are distracted, whether you're angry this morning, whether you are starving, you can't concentrate, maybe you're sad, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you've had a really hard week, would you ask the Lord to give you grace this morning to hear his word and to pay attention, to have your affections changed? And then now will you take your eyes off of yourself And think about those in this room, or maybe even those who are watching this online because they are sick and at home and couldn't be here, or whatever it might be, and would you ask that the Lord would give us a collective heart 
that would uh, be able to hear and heed his word. And then lastly, for me, for faithfulness, for clarity. And so, Father, we're grateful. We pray that you would incline our eyes to your, your heart, our hearts and our eyes, our minds, to see your word, to behold the glory of your Son, and to be transformed by your Spirit. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. You're a good Father who gives good gifts and you've given us your scripture and so pray that you'd help us now in Christ's name. Amen. Look at Matthew 3.13, which says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is now our third sermon in Matthew 3, dealing with uh, J the B, right? John the Baptist, the Big Dipper. And remember the context that we've talked about. Not only is Malachi, we've talked about the context of Malachi. Malachi is the final book in our Old Testament, but Malachi is also the final prophet of the Old Testament. So chronologically, he's the final prophet to the nation of Israel, unless you count John the Baptist. But Malachi is going to prophesy that one day a prophet is going to come, and that prophet he describes as being in the spirit of Elijah. And this prophet will prepare the way of the Lord. And so Malachi is going to prophesy that, and then there's silence. There's this oppressive silence. There's 400 years of prophetic famine, crickets for the nation of Israel. And then suddenly John arrives on the scene. In fact, Matthew's narrative is told in such a way that he just kind of appears out of nowhere because that's how the nation of Israel would have received him. They've had silence not only for their lifetime but their parents' lifetime and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and on we could go. So John arrives on the scene and he's wearing the same clothes as Elijah. He speaks the same message as Elijah, a message of repentance for God's people. And he's calling people to be baptized, to be immersed. And this was really scandalous in his cultural context because baptism was something that wasn't for Jews. Baptism was something for proselytes. Baptism was something for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. So in effect, what John is saying is that Israel needs to be converted. That ethnic Israelites are not actually Israel apart from faith. You can't be born into this new covenant relationship with God. You have to be reborn into it. It's not by biology, it's by belief. It's not by your family, it's by faith. It's not by genetics, it's by grace. So apart from faith, ethnic Israel is just like Babylon. It's just like Assyria. It's just like Egypt. So as you can imagine, this would be incredibly offensive to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in particular. So we'll see there's going to be conflict between John and those leaders. Jared talked about that last week. We'll see more of that in future weeks. So John is baptizing, and that brings us to the question question that we maybe could have asked or answered over the past couple of weeks, but we saved it to today. And that question is, is what we see the apostles doing in Acts and what churches do today, is that baptism the same as what John is doing? Is John's baptism similar to Christian baptism? Is it the same as Christian baptism? And the answer is that it's close, it's similar, but it's not exactly the same. There is a difference between John's baptism and the baptism that the apostles practice and the baptism that churches practice today. In fact, the Bible is explicitly going to distinguish the baptism of John from Christian baptism. That is the baptism that you see in the book of Acts with the apostles and then also the baptism that you see in churches today. So Christian baptism today is the same as baptism of, of, uh, of the apostles, but John's is different. Look at Acts 19. Verses 1 through 5. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, if you were here for our 1 Corinthians series that we were in most of, or all of last year, 
You'll be familiar with some of this stuff. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there you go. In John's baptism, John's baptism, like John himself, is preparatory. John's baptism looks forward to what Jesus would accomplish. But Christian baptism looks backward at what has already been accomplished. And notice that there is this connection between receiving the baptism of Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. If you remember what John the Baptist said over the past couple of weeks, he says, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming after me who will baptize with what? With the Spirit and with fire. So Christian baptism is a, uh, is a symbol of that reality. It is John's baptism, which points to Jesus' baptism, which has now been fulfilled. Christian baptism is a symbol of that rea- reality that someone has received the Spirit. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we practice credo-baptism, the baptism of those who profess faith, as opposed to paedo-baptism, which says that we should baptize infants, even though they don't have faith. So there is this overlap between the meaning of what John is doing in his baptism and the meaning of what we do when we baptize someone, but they aren't exactly the same because John doesn't yet have access to the full picture of who Jesus is and what he does that we do. We're looking backward, and hindsight is 2020. Now back to Matthew, though. The past couple of weeks, we've looked at the ministry of John, the baptizer. But now Jesus is going to re-enter into the story. John the Baptist has been kind of this parenthesis in this story, which is ultimately about King Jesus. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. That should be seared into your thinking. When I say gospel, you should think kingdom. When I say kingdom, you should think gospel. We proved that a couple of weeks ago. So the good news is the good news that the king is ruling. The king is reigning. And that all that is sad is being restored. All that has been tainted by the fall is being recreated and renewed. And so when we last left King Jesus, he was this young child in Nazareth, which is a region of Galilee in northern Israel. So now we've fast-forwarded about 30 years or so, and he leaves Galilee, and he heads down south to Judea. If you're reading in the Gospel of John, it would be even more precise. It locates the site at which he's baptized as a place called Bethany. But John doesn't want that to be confused with another Bethany that we see in Scripture, the Bethany that most appears, most often appears in the New Testament. So it's called Bethany beyond the Jordan. In other words, it's to the east of the Jordan River as opposed to the west, which is where Jerusalem and the other Bethany and, uh, and so forth is. So Jesus heads south, and he does so for a particular reason. Notice, what is that reason? It says he heads down there in order to be baptized by John. Notice that's the purpose. That's the goal. One of the things that we'll note as we look at Jesus' life and ministry in the, the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is always on mission. There's always intentionality. He doesn't do anything capriciously. He doesn't do anything on a whim. There's intentionality behind all of it. So he goes to be baptized by John. That's the purpose. That's the goal. Why does he want to be baptized by John? We'll get to that. But for now, notice that's the rationale for his journey, he travels more than 80 miles, so he must be really passionate about this purpose. He travels some 80 miles on foot in order to be baptized. And this is going to set the scene for this potential short lived conflict between our two main characters, John the Baptist and Jesus. Let's see that in verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to? Me. So last Sunday, if you were here for theological equipping, we talked about uh, celebration and gratitude. And then immediately after services, or, or, or pretty soon after services, I got a text message from uh, a buddy of mine. 
And uh, he's the husband, he's a member of the church, and his wife is also a member of the church. And she, her name is Gabby, Gabby Lee, she's a professional tennis player. So I got a text right after services saying there's a reason to celebrate because she had won a fairly large professional tennis tournament, moved her ranking all the way from the 250th ranked woman in the world to 150. That's a huge jump. Right, this week she's playing in the qualifiers for the French Open. If you get a chance to watch the French Open, check out Gabby Lee. She's uh, one of our members again. Some of you know that I grew up playing tennis. I love tennis. So one day I went and played Gabby, and it was a massacre, right? I destroyed her. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't win a game. I got to deuce multiple games, but I didn't actually win a game. But imagine that I were to go to Gabby... I watched one of her matches or something like that, and I were to try to give her tennis advice. You know, I said something like, I know you're professional, you're number 150 in the world, but I played three years of varsity high school tennis. <laughs> so listen up. That's absurd, right? Well, that's kind of what this text reminds me of. John the Baptist is no slouch. If we're drafting the guys to be on our all-Bible team, in terms of righteousness, in terms of holiness, in terms of commitment to the kingdom, in terms of abilities and so forth. He's a first-round pick. He might be your second overall pick behind Jesus himself. But make no mistake, the difference between the number one pick, Jesus, and the number two pick is literally infinite. Literally, and John knows it. He feels it. So he initially balks at this suggestion of baptizing Jesus. He knows there's something off about this. It's like me giving advice to Michael Jordan or Steph Curry or something like that. So why does he balk at it? I think he does so for a couple of reasons. First, we've already seen that John is humble. That's something we've already seen in the, uh, the text. He knows he's not the main course. At best, he's the appetizer. He's not the main act. He's the warm-up act. Second, I think that he balks at this suggestion because the nature of John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And Jesus has no need of repentance. After all, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means that he himself has to have no sin. He must be bl uh, blameless, without blemish or spot. So it would seem to John like his baptism would be really inappropriate for Jesus. And a third reason I think he balks at the suggestion is because John recognizes that he needs the baptism that Christ offers. Remember, we already mentioned that. John says, I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming after me who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. And John is saying, I need that. I'm not born into the kingdom of God. I have to be reborn into the kingdom of God. So John is confused because he's the one who needs to be baptized with his greater baptism. It's kind of like going to someone's uh, birthday party and you expect to give them a gift and they give you a gift. It's a reversal of expectation. John knows that he needs this better baptism that Christ offers. So he's confused by Christ's request for his lesser baptism. So that's why John was resistant why then does he change his mind? Why isn't this, this some protracted, long, ongoing argument? Let's see that in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So to this point, most of the text has been setting. It's been context. It's kind of setting the, the table, so to speak. But verses 15 through 17 is going to be the real feast. It's weighted heavily towards this latter half. That's where most of our theological and pastoral weight uh, falls. Before we see what uh, Jesus says, let's look at John's response. Short and succinct, it says, John consented. He relented. There's no screaming match there in the Jordan. There's no back and forth between these two great minds going at it. John feels confused. He registers his confusion. He voices it. Jesus answers, and then John relents. Again, we see this compelling picture of John's faithfulness, of John's obedience, his humility. So what is it that's said by Jesus that causes John to consent? He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
And this passage is absolutely the most difficult section of the text today. In fact, theologians are all over the place in regards to what Jesus actually mean, means. So in order to really grasp what Jesus means here, we need to ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? And we can kind of throw out, before we begin, the idea that it was because he was sinful or because he needed to repent So if he's not being baptized for the same reason that other Israelites are being baptized, why then is he baptized? I want to mention six reasons from this text. We'll look at those. First, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now that's the most obvious. We haven't really answered the question. We've just restated Christ's own words. So what does it actually mean? Well, often when we see the word fulfill in the book of Matthew... It's in reference to some sort of prophecy. Unfortunately, there is no prophecy that says that the prophet, like Elijah, will baptize the Messianic king. That's only a a problem if you have a very one-dimensional view of prophecy. We've talked about how sometimes fulfillment of prophecy doesn't just point to a specific text, but rather to an Old Testament pattern. For instance, there is this pattern in the Old Testament of the kings of Israel being anointed. And who would they be anointed by but prophets? What's interesting is even Elijah, the prophet, anointed the king of Israel and other kings, by the way. So John the Baptist, the prophet, baptizing Jesus, carries on that same pattern. Or another pattern that's fulfilled is the expectation of the spirit anointing the servant of the Lord. In this passage, we'll see that the Spirit anoints Christ. And that's really important, and that the Old Testament speaks of the anointing of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61. Which is interesting because when Jesus is beginning his public ministry in the book of Luke, he's in a synagogue and he reads a passage of scripture. What he chooses to read is Isaiah 61. Look at Luke 4. 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you remember what we said about kingdom, this should uh, uh, set off some alarms here. This is kingdom stuff. The kingdom is God overcoming all obstacles to his rule and reign, overcoming all the effects of the fall. What are some of the effects of the fall? Well, poverty is an effect of the fall. Captivity is an effect of the fall. Blindness is an effect of the fall. Oppression is an effect of the fall. So there's kingdom language here. But notice that that idea of the spirit anointing the servant. So in the event of Christ's baptism, the spirit anoints him for ministry and fulfillment of this prophetic hope. Now, I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is only that his baptism fulfills all righteousness. Instead, I think what's happening here is he sees his baptism as kind of the entry point, the beginning of his public ministry. In fact, his baptism is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's always the beginning of his ministry. It's shown as kind of the entry point or his coming on the scene. So I think that what's happening here isn't that Jesus is just referring to his baptism. Instead, I think he's referring to his entire ministry. The baptism, you might think of it as the opening move to the unfolding sequence that is Christ's entire public ministry. That entire public ministry is what is necessary to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. All of it is necessary. There's nothing superfluous. Remember, we said earlier, Christ doesn't do anything at a capriciousness. He doesn't do anything on a whim or on a lark. Everything he does is necessary. It's nothing that's superfluous or extraneous, nothing that's unnecessary or irrelevant about Christ's life and ministry. It's all necessary, and his baptism is a part of that. So in other words, I I would encourage you to think not just of, of the baptism as being the one event that fulfills all righteousness, but rather what Christ is saying here is that baptism is the first step of this unfolding sequence of all of my life and ministry, which together, corporately, will fulfill all ministries. 
So let's look at other reasons for Christ to be baptized. We mentioned the first one, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. But that's kind of the overarching theme. Let's get more specific. A second reason that Christ was baptized was in order to demonstrate the opening of the door between heaven and earth. We'll see that in the next verse, which speaks of the heavens opening. And that's symbolic. And that what happens at the fall is that there is this separation between heaven and earth. The door, the portal between heaven and earth is closed. So there's this separation between heaven and earth, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the earth. And so, you, in fact, throughout Matthew's gospel, you'll see this contrast between heaven and earth for that reason, to show that there is this disjunction between the two. So Christ's baptism serves as a preview of the coming reality that a way is being made for that separation to be bridged. That there is a way that is coming for heaven to once again be opened. So the opening of the heavens that we'll see in this passage at Christ's baptism signifies in visual form the spiritual opening of the way to God. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is always in fellowship with the Father. But this opening manifests for us the reality of that fellowship. And it welcomes us into that fellowship. That's the second reason that Christ is baptized. A third reason is that Christ's baptism proclaims what we saw last week in our text about wrath and deliverance. That's part of the meaning of baptism, by the way. We've talked about this before, but our conception of water is really different from the ancient Near East. We're getting ready for summer here. It's already starting to get hot. My kids always want to go out and play in the sprinkler. Or they want to escape the unbearable heat, I guess, of being indoors. So they want to go outside and they want to play in the sprinkler. We think of water as being a place of rest and refreshment. We want to go to the pool. We want to go to the beach club. We want to go to the beach as a place of fun. But that was not the way that ancient Jews, in fact, most of the ancient cultures, thought of the water. Rather, waters were seen as a means of God's wrath and judgment. Think about the places that you see that in the Old Testament. The Red Sea closing upon the Egyptians. The story of Noah, which wipes out most of the earth. Throughout the prophets, water is depicted as a means of God's judgment. God speaks of floods as being a means of his judgment. But there's also this pattern that we see, which is not only that God judges people through water, he also delivers people through water. Notice again the story of the Egyptians the Red Sea. The Egyptians are destroyed by the water of the Red Sea, but God delivers Israel through it. They don't just simply teleport from one end to the other. He parts it and they walk through it. Or the nations are destroyed by the flood, but Noah and his family is preserved. Again, he's not just somehow immune to the flood, but he's in an ark. He's safely preserved through it. So Christ's baptism preserves that same pattern as well. It serves as this vivid depiction of the reality of God's judgment. That's why Christian's baptism is described as being baptized into death. And even Christ's death is described as a baptism later in the Gospels. He'll ask his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to undergo? And by that he means his death. But the great gospel glory of this theme of water judgment in Scripture is that God not only judges by water, he also delivers through water. God preserves Noah through the ark. The waters destroy the nations. God preserves his people. The same thing with the Red Sea. And the same thing in the New Covenant. So Christ's uh, Christ, uh, baptism alludes to that same pattern. Fourth, Christ's baptism proclaims the message of a new creation. Think back to the original creation account. Back to the book of Genesis. As God is creating, what is the Spirit described as doing? He's hovering over the waters. What's the Spirit doing here in Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus? He's hovering over the waters like a dove. And then what symbol, again, I just mentioned it, is attached to the Spirit in this passage? That of a dove. Where else do you see a dove, particularly in the book of Genesis, where you see 
A dove is sent out from the ark as a sign of new creation after the flood. The flood destroys the earth in a sense, but the dove is a symbol that God is going to restore it, that there's going to be recreation. So both of these nuances, the spirit hovering and the dove, both of those nuances of the baptismal story should remind us, should take us back to the book of Genesis, remind us of this creation or recreation motif that we see there. And that's really important because in Christ there is this new creation. That's one of the themes of the gospel. A fifth thing that Christ's uh, baptism accomplishes is the baptism account shows us that Christ is the beloved son of Old Testament prophecy. We'll get to that when we look at verses 16 and 17. I just want to mention it now. And then lastly, Christ's baptism symbolizes his identification with us. I think this is a really important one for you to grasp. That's a theme of Christ's ministry. In humility, Christ identifies with his people. The most explicit place that you can see that is in the incarnation. In the incarnation, he literally becomes man. There is no deeper identification of God with his people than by becoming a man. But that's not restricted to the incarnation. Indeed, his entire ministry is one of identification. In fact, the the book of Isaiah in chapter 15, I'm sorry, in chapter 53, talks about the suffering servant who will bear the iniquities of his people. He will bear the sin of his people. As he dies, not for, for his own sin, but for our sin, so he's baptized not for his own sin, but for our sin. As a commentator, Leon Morris states, Jesus might well have been up there in the front, standing with John, and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. So we see this glorious display of Christ's humility in this act. He who knew no sin, he who had no need to repent, nonetheless sympathizes with us, sympathizes with our weaknesses, And bears our sin. That's not just something that happens on the cross. That's something that happens his entire life. Again, one of the things that we have to do is not just dissect all of the different aspects of his ministry. And say, our salvation was accomplished just on the cross. No, our salvation was accomplished in everything that Christ did. From his incarnation, through his ministry, to his death, and his resurrection, and his future return. So he sympathizes with us and and bears our sin. It's not just something that happens on the cross. Indeed, it happens in his entire life and ministry. And you see that beginning here in his baptism. Let's keep going. Verses 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was baptized, he's immersed, and as he comes up out of the water, the heavens were opened to him. This language of uh, of the opening of heavens is is really common in apocalyptic and eschatological literature, as is this idea of a voice from heaven. And the whole passage is dripping with allusions to the Old Testament. I mentioned before that the, uh, the baptism account fulfills the expectation of certain Old Testament passages that speak of a beloved son. So let me mention a couple of those. The first one involves typology. Remember, typology is seeing this relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly between the Old Testament and Christ. That is not coincidental, but it's providential. There is this parallel that exists between them. So think about to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is told to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. Look at Genesis 22, verse 2. He said, that's that's Yahweh, the Lord God, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, interestingly enough, if you read that in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, The word that's used to describe Isaac there, where it says, uh, your only son whom you love, 
The word there is beloved. So when a Jew reads about or hears about a, quote, beloved son, their minds would instantly go to that story. In fact, John's gospel makes that connection even more explicit by having John the Baptist describing Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God. What's provided there is a lamb or a ram. So that's one text that the beloved son should remind you of if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Another text that this baptismal account would remind you of, in particular Christ being called the beloved son, is Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about a future king, and that king is described as God's son. Look at Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Interestingly enough, Mark and Luke, if you're reading this in their gospels, they both make that connection to this psalm even clearer because their version of the voice, what the voice says at Christ's baptism, is not, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, but you are my beloved son. The exact same reference, the exact same pronoun that's used here in Psalm 2. So the context of the baptism is showing that Jesus isn't just another prophet. He's not John the Baptist 2.0, new and improved. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another king. He is indeed the Son of God, a title which was reserved in the Old Testament for this messianic king. So we read earlier from Luke 4, that, uh, that Jesus fulfills this expectation of Isaiah 61, that the Messiah would bring life and liberty and so forth because he is anointed by the Spirit. Well, that anointing by the Spirit would also remind readers familiar with the Old Testament of Isaiah 42. Look at verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. Notice this phrase, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Notice that language of God's soul delighting in the servant. That mirrors what we see in Matthew. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So you have the spirit anointing The servant in whom God delights, there in Isaiah 42, that mirrors the account of Christ's baptism. Let me give you one more example of this, Isaiah 11, 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or uh, decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. By the way, the Hebrew word that's translated as branch here, as netzer, which has led many scholars to think that might be partly what Matthew means or meant when he said a few verses back that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Jared talked about how uh, one of the common interpretations of that is that it means he's going to be an outsider. He's going to be someone who is uh, not in the inner circle. He's going to be someone who is kind of uh, seen as being outside. But another potential interpretation of that is that it's a reference to that passage. Netzer and Nazarene, if you were looking at it in Hebrew, would have the exact same consonants. They come from the same root word. Regardless, it's clear that Isaiah expects this future servant to be anointed by the Spirit. Or to be even more clear, notice, according to Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, if you were to go back and look at Matthew, what does Matthew say? Say, it says that the Spirit descended like a dove and what? Rested on him. Same language. 
You also have language about righteousness and delighting in this passage. So again, lots of allusions in Matthew to this passage. This passage, again, is dripping with Old Testament uh, sort of ideas. This idea of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, being anointed by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. It's going to be massively important as we move through Matthew. Next week, we'll read that Christ is led by the Spirit to be tempted. Or later in the book, we'll see that Christ casts out demons by the Spirit. So the Spirit is essential to Christ's ministry. You can't understand the ministry of Christ without understanding the role and the work of the Spirit. He's not only the divine Son of God, He's also the Spirit-filled Man. So I mentioned all that now because I want you to notice that as you're reading Matthew and as we're working through the book of Matthew, I want you to be on the lookout for that sort of idea that Jesus is filled by the Spirit and led by the Spirit. But here's the hardest part, I think, of preaching this particular text. We could literally sit here all day just looking at other references of the Old Testament, that Christ's life in general or the events surrounding his baptism in particular fulfill. I mean, we, could, we read a number of passages, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 11. We could go on and move outside of Isaiah and look at other passages that Christ is fulfilling that are in uh, being alluded to here. What makes it really hard to preach this is, in a sense, you can't really understand the fullness of this passage if you don't see all of those connections. The problem with that is that there are too many connections to mention unless we want to be here all day. The same is true with a number of other details of the text. We haven't even talked about the symbolism of doves. We haven't even asked the question, could other people... Hear the voice from heaven? Could other people see the heavens open? Or is that something only Jesus could see and hear? We haven't talked about the implicit Trinitarianism of the passage. All of that would be really edifying and interesting. But unfortunately, this is not a Bible study or a commentary. It's a sermon. So we eventually need to get some form of application. It's kind of where sermons need to land. And so what is the application? Here it is. I think that as Christ's baptism is a sign of his identifying with us, with his people, so our response to this passage should be to identify with him. And we might think that means we should be baptized. And yes, that's true, we should be baptized. But that's a secondary response. The primary response, the primary way that we identify with Christ is through faith itself. In other words, the way, the primary way to apply this text is not to say, Go and be baptized. Should you be baptized? Absolutely. If you love and trust Jesus, you should be baptized as soon as possible. But that isn't the point of this text. Neither is the point of this text that you need to be filled with the Spirit or that you need to stop arguing with God. Those things are true, but that's not the point of this passage. What is? The point of this passage is that you need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's accomplished what the Bible says he's accomplished, and you need to worship him in light of that. That's the point of this text. The point of this text is to so exalt the person and work of Christ that we might see him and worship him more clearly. And that's an important distinction to make because the real point of this text isn't that we need to do something. If you read this text, And your primary response, your initial response, your instinctual response is to say, I need to do something for God. You've actually undermined the meaning of the text. Because the primary meaning of this text isn't that you need to do something for God. It's that God has already done everything for you. And here's what I mean. I don't just mean that generically. I mean very specifically and particularly, explicitly. Every single thing that we've seen in this text as applied to Christ is now ours already through Christ. All that is depicted in this passage is happening to Jesus has happened to us in Christ. Think about it. Baptism. What is baptism a sign of? Baptism is a sign and a seal of our cleansing and our rebirth. So we are cleansed by the blood of Christ and we're reborn by the word of Christ. 
That happens not through baptism itself, but through faith in Christ. And as the heavens are open to Jesus in this passage, so they're now open to us through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the door. He is the gate. The separation between heaven and earth has been bridged. You see in the book of Genesis, heaven and earth are separated. And occasionally there are places where they kind of, there's, a, there's a portals on earth. You see the, one of the, the, the sacredness of mountains. There's this place where the earth juts up into the heavens as a sign of our desire to commune with God. That's why all of these events happen in the Old Testament on mountains. Not only that, but the temple is described as a place where heaven and earth kind of overlap. And Jesus is described as the temple. He is where that, that chasm that exists, not only between heaven and earth, between you and God, has been bridged. So as the heavens are open to Jesus, so the heavens are now open to us in Jesus. As the Spirit rested on Christ in this passage, the Spirit now indwells those who have faith in Christ. As the Father speaks to his Son, he says, this is my beloved Son. So what does he call us? Sons and daughters. We call him Abba, Father. As the Father delights in Christ, it says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So now he's pleased with us through Christ. And this last one is really important. This idea of God being pleased with us through Christ is really important for us to grasp because in it we find an answer to one of the most pressing questions of humanity. How can I please God? And how you answer that means absolutely everything. Do we please God by simply pursuing our own pleasure, as Epicureans or hedonists would say? Do we please God by fasting and prayer? Do we please God through our acts of righteousness, as the Pharisees and the legalists would say? How do we please God? The way the Bible holds out is that we please God by being united to the one in whom his pleasure dwells fully. In Christ, in Christ alone, we please God. You in and of yourself will never please God. You in Christ pleases God. Probably wasn't grammatically correct. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing which pleases God. Look at Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice he rewards those who seek him. Where are those rewards to be found? They'll be found in Christ. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, as Colossians says. You see that phrase, in Christ, dozens and dozens of times throughout the New Testament. And it points to what theologians call the doctrine of the union of Christ. We've talked about that a lot here at Parkway over the years. The doctrine of the union of Christ is described as the fountainhead from which all of God's blessings flow to us. The point that I'm making, and I want to kind of land here, is that there are really two ways to misunderstand and misapply the idea of pleasing God. I want to give you an illustration to help clarify that. Suppose you're on a deserted island in the middle of the sea. It's just you and a volleyball. (laughs) Nothing but ocean for miles and miles around. And maybe you think, maybe you're arrogant like me, you know, I think, yeah, I played varsity tennis, I can be the number 150 girl in the world. Uh, Maybe you think, you know what, I swam. I swam in middle school. I'm a pretty strong swimmer. I'm just going to swim my way out of this mess. Thousands of miles away, the mainland. That's absurd, obviously. If I know anything about the ocean, and I think I'll know a lot about the ocean, it's that sharks kill 100% of people who get in the ocean, right? (laughs) Never get in there. So then you give in to despair, right? And you think, I guess there just isn't any hope. You're on this island, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the second misapplication. How so? Because imagine in this scenario that there's a fully operational boat there on the island. Yes, you can't swim for help but neither are you helpless. 
Rather, if you are in the boat, you're safe. Wherever that boat goes, you go. If that boat is secure, you're secure. If that boat arrives at the mainland, you arrive at the mainland. That's the reality when it comes to being a son of God or a daughter of God or pleasing God. Can you achieve that by your own effort, by your own pedigree, by your genetics, by your self-will, by your discipline? Of course not. Do you please God by simply not cussing and not smoking and not getting drunk or by coming to church and giving a tithe and reading your Bible? Of course not. But does that mean that you're hopeless? The answer is no. Rather, the way that you please God is through being united to Christ. In him, you're a son or daughter. In him, you're righteous. In him, you please God. In him, every blessing is yours. So in him, we hear what was said of the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we hear you, too, are a beloved son or daughter with whom God is well pleased. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I just confess that there is no one in this room who fully grasps the glory of this passage, who fully grasps the glory of your son, who fully grasps the depths of your love and grace and mercy to us, who fully appreciates what you have accomplished for us. I confess that we are constantly assaulted by the temptation to either find our hope in our own efforts or to swing the pendulum towards hopelessness. And so I pray rather that we would find our hope in Christ and the reality that you have been pleased with us not because of us, but because of your son. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.